listening to the podcast Advertising Playbook, your resource to better understand and execute successful podcast ad campaigns. Hello and welcome to the podcast Advertising Playbook. I'm your host, Heather Osgood, and I'm super excited for today's episode because as you know, if you have listened to the show for a bit, we really love to dig into podcast advertising and interview everyone that is kind of in that space. But today's guest is just a little bit different. I would like to welcome Gordon Firemark to the show. Gordon is an attorney and the CEO of Firemark Enterprises. Welcome to the show. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. And the reason that our conversation is going to be so different today, Gordon, is because this is the first time I've had an attorney on my show, and I'm just really excited to dig into some of the questions. So why don't we get started by having you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in this podcast space? Okay. Well, you said to, uh, you, you introduced me as an attorney and CEO of Firemark Enter- Enterprises. What we do here is provide education and do-it-yourself tools, as well as legal services for folks that need help with things, mainly in the entertainment, media, and intellectual property space. I come to this about as honestly as you can, I think. I I got my start in, well, as a little kid, I got really excited about theater, and I began working as a sound technician and live theater in my teens and through college and into actually into my law practice as well. When I was in college studying radio, TV, and film, a teacher discovered an ap- an aptitude for the legal and the regulatory and that kind of stuff and suggested that I think about going to law school. I laughed her out of the room at the time. And then the idea sank in, especially after I didn't get into film school, <laughs> but I got into law school. <laughs> That's ironic, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she was right, and I've told her so since then. And so uh, for the last 30 years or so, I've been practicing in the field of entertainment and media law. And... Because I had that background with sound and production and all those kinds of things, when I started looking for ways to market my practice, I did the email newsletter before email newsletters were cool. I did blogs before blogs were cool. And I discovered podcasting really in the early days, uh, first as a listener. And then I thought, well, that would be an interesting way to take this newsletter thing and make it something fun and media friendly. So I did that. And then I went looking for uh, resources to support my entertainment law knowledge and realized that there just wasn't any. Mm-hmm. So I sat down and I wrote a book called the podcaster blog and new media producers, legal survival guide. And uh, you write a book, you become an expert, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I've become sort of the go-to person for questions about these areas of media law and entertainment law that come up specifically in the podcast and new media space. Excellent. Excellent. And I think that, you know, all of us in business of some sort have realized that at least I have for myself that I don't usually really think about needing an attorney until I need an attorney. And then I'm like, oh gosh, wouldn't it have been great if I had thought about this ahead of time? So um, the fact that you are creating resources for people so that they can, I think, really just get everything taken care of correctly from the get-go is so, so valuable. And when I think about kind of just you know, digging into the advertising and the podcast space and everything that's going on. You know, we hear it talked about all the time that we're kind of in the wild, wild west of podcast ads. And I do find that to be the case, mostly because it seems like we'll be going down this path and everyone's doing this kind of set of things. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We decided that's not the way to do it. Let's do it this way. So, you know, things just kind of change a lot. 
But I'm just curious, from a legal perspective, do you see as we're looking specifically at podcasters and advertiser relationships, what do people miss most often when they're like, hey, I'm a podcaster, I should get an advertiser, that sounds great. What are they not considering? The most common mistake that folks on both sides of that equation may, you know, let's face it, the podcasters and the advertisers are essentially opposite sides of the negotiating table. What often gets overlooked or just not handled well is the definition of terms. I, I had a, a situation with a, a podcaster who had made a deal with an advertiser sponsor to sponsor the show, the emails uh, that made up the contract said, uh, we'll sponsor your show at a thousand dollars per podcast. Well, a year later, after the podcaster who was my client had been charging this client's credit card a thousand bucks for every episode that came out, 50 episodes, the client turned around and said, wait a minute, you overcharged me $49,000. I thought I was sponsoring the whole podcast for a thousand dollars. And the podcast is known, I meant each time the podcast comes out. And so had they clarified and used more precise language, they wouldn't have had this big dispute, which ended up, you know, the credit card company took a charge back for $49,000 out of this podcaster's account, and they are still battling it out and damage to people's credit and all kinds of, you know, bad things can happen. Simple question of just defining a term and frankly, having gotten it down in writing in a properly documented contract written by someone who thinks about these issues would have saved a lot of trouble rather than just relying on that sort of the modern equivalent, the email handshake deal uh, right. would have made a big difference. Oh my gosh. And that poor podcaster, they were probably like, yay, I just made $50,000 this year. And then all of yeah. a sudden they're like, oh wait, no, it was a thousand. Yeah, you got to feel pretty bad for the guy whose credit card got hit for 50 grand when he wasn't expecting it also. I mean, true, it true. A, a valid <laughs> reason for their stomach being in knots. Yeah. Although I don't know if I would have have, have not noticed my card had been charged $49,000 for 12. Definitely a little bit of left buyer beware on that side of it. I <laughs> yeah, agree. Yeah, for sure. But no, I think I totally agree with you. And what I find is so fascinating, and I know that we have folks in the industry that are working on this, but a lot of times the terms that we use are also extremely confusing. Mm. So like you mentioned, like you in this example, like $1,000 per podcast, that can mean a lot of different things, right? So are we talking about a show? Are we talking about an episode? Are we talking about downloads? Are we talking about impressions? Like mm -hmm. All of these things are very different, and it is so important to make sure that you get all of those things in writing and that the advertiser understands what it is that they can expect to receive. And I really do think, especially around the numbers, I think there's a lot of confusion about downloads and impressions that kind of fly around in this space right now because of dynamic ad insertion and because yeah. the download has you know, been kind of the basis of what we've all looked to for many years. And now all of a sudden with dynamic ad insertion, we're looking at impressions instead of downloads. What's a way that a podcaster and an advertiser can both get just really clear on the terms that they're using in an agreement and what is actually being delivered? Well, I think that, you know, the, the contract itself should define the terms carefully. And, you know, most of the time we, we will 
the lawyers will write out the definition or, or explain what is going to be considered the thing and then give it the the shorthand, the nickname, mm-hmm. you know, quote podcast or quote episode or something like that. And then that's how you do it. But I actually am. I'm not usually partial to contracts that have just a, a whole section where it's just definitions, mm-hmm. but it can be really valuable when you're in an industry where there's a particular kind of lingo that gets used so mm-hmm. that there is no confusion about that. But the key is if you see a term and you don't know what it means and you can't find it in the contractor document, ask the question and ask for it to be clarified and written into the document. No other solution but that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The other couple terms that I see as being really important in a contract, I'm curious what your thoughts are, um, are the cancellation terms. So mm-hmm. I find with podcasters in particular, especially when an advertiser signs an annual contract, they're like, yes, they're in for a year, they can go nowhere. And I'm like, uh, no, there's a cancellation clause saying that. And typically what we find is that it's about 30 days is standard. So with 30 days notice, they could cancel the entire contract. Um, The other one that I find interesting is first right of refusal. So let's say you are, and in the contract, most of the time it will outline exclusivity because of the nature of host read ads. If you're running an ad for, let's say, a meal delivery company, they're not going to want you, you know, we're not going to want to talk about Blue Apron and HelloFresh in the same breath. So there's that exclusivity. And then most of the time, the advertiser wants to have the first right of refusal, right? Meaning that you come to them and say, hey, you know, Blue Apron wants to advertise. HelloFresh, I know you just finished advertising. Are you going to advertise again? Or should I go over and talk to Blue Apron? So those are a couple that I think are really important that should be addressed. What are your thoughts around those? I I agree with that. Again, it's somewhat a question of defining things. I'm not a big fan of the right of first refusal uh, clauses depends how they're written, of course, because often they're actually a right of last refusal, which isn't really fair because it can hold things up while you're trying to make a deal with somebody new. And, you know, uh, you end up not really getting the value of the original contract if you've got two months of negotiating before the next time starts and those kinds of things. So that's a little bit of an issue there. But I, yeah, I agree. And, and the exclusivity, you don't want Coke and Pepsi advertised in the same, certainly not on the same segment of a show uh, in the television industry, which is long established in how they do advertising. Uh, the, the same thing goes. We generally don't see ads for competing brands in the same ad break mm-hmm. with a podcast. We don't really have ad, break. we usually have one mid roll break if we're going to do it. And so, yeah, we have to just be clear about what, how exclusive are we? Right. Um, and if you have an overall sponsor for the show for a season, or like you were saying, the, the year-long commitment with the cancellation term, by the way, not all contracts have to have that cancellation true, term. If, true. If everybody's willing to do it, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're going to advertise again. And brand awareness advertising is different than promotional campaign advertising where, mm-hmm. you know, if, you, if HelloFresh wants to advertise on your show, and as long as your numbers don't dip dramatically, so they're not getting what they thought they were paying for. You could bind them to a, a year-long contract and they become sort of a, a season sponsor or something like that. But but yeah, I mean, it all, again, it, <laughs> it comes down to definitions and articulating what do we mean by year-long? What do we mean by exclusive? What do we mean by right of first refusal? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just making sure you understand it. Unfortunately, these are legal phrases with legal consequences. And so it isn't always a do-it-yourself project to 
to answer these questions. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally agree. Okay. So now I'm really curious who owns the actual ad and I'll give you an example. So we had an advertiser and it was a direct company that we were working with. Obviously we're working with these host red endorsement ads and the advertiser. And I think really smart from a marketing perspective was like, Hey, this guy just endorsed my product. This is amazing. I'm going to throw this out all over the place. So he took that ad that the podcaster had created. He shared it all over, you know, social media, but then he kind of went a step further and he used the endorsement, you know, as this person's endorsing my product, he put it in writing, you know, and put this person's face all over everything, the podcast host. And I definitely felt like the advertiser had crossed a line, but again, there hadn't really been anything that was super defined about what the advertiser could or couldn't do. And I do, I do think it's really interesting when we're talking about branded podcast episodes, usually we'll talk about who is going to own that and will the advertiser get rights to it and can they use it in different places. But just for a standard ad, we don't really typically discuss who owns the ad. What is your perspective on that? Well, the answer is we don't need to discuss it because the answer is very clear in the law. The rule is the person who is the author of the recording owns the recording. So the podcaster is the owner in the scenario you laid out. Absolutely. Now the, the advertiser may have written the copy that is now embodied in that recording. So there could be some, you know, disagreement about that, but I think that advertiser did cross the line. I think that the contract was for the, the scope of advertising on the show and all of that other stuff should have been negotiated separately or, you know, should have been negotiated. Frankly, it could have been in the contract. Hey, we get to use the recording for this long of a period of time and we get to transcribe it and use it this way with your name and likeness and all those kinds of things but the dollars should have reflected all of those additional rights that were being that would have been granted had they been uh, negotiated properly so Mm -hmm. i wouldn't have had any hesitation as a lawyer of, of writing a cease and desist to that advertiser Okay. Okay. That's great to know. And I did think that that was the case, but it's nice to have, have someone with knowledge confirmed that the person who is creating the content, they're the ones that are posting it. They own that content. Yeah. In, in copyright law, authorship is ownership. Uh And unless there's an employer employee relationship, in which case the employer is considered the author in the first place, or if there's a special written contract that uses specific language to articulate that, no, in fact, the company that's hiring or paying for the work is going to own it. But other than that, no, the owner is the person who created the person or company who creates the work and any other transfers would need to be done in writing. Okay. And so do you think that there are certain things that podcasters should be doing to create, like to protect the content that they create? So I know I haven't heard a lot of talk about this for a while, but people were repurposing podcasts and posting them on Anchor because obviously you can post a free podcast on Anchor and then you can get the ad money. You know, obviously famously people were doing that with Joe Rogan's show, but what should a podcaster be doing to protect their content? Well, I mean, the good news is there isn't anything that's legally required in order to have the protection of copyright law to, to, you know, to, to prevent, or at least to give you recourse if somebody does those sort of shady things. So, I mean, when you're doing your deals, of course, the definitions and clarity and so on. and, And so had the podcaster specified in the advertising agreement, 
here's what you, the advertiser, would have a right to do with the materials. Mm-hmm. That would be, a, a, you know, the four corners of the document really, you know, explain those things. But uh, in terms of copyright law, no, there's nothing required to do to protect yourself. It's not a bad idea to register the copyrights with the United States Library of Congress, the Copyright Office, because that gives you access to, well, access to the courts. You have to register before you file a lawsuit. But if you register it early, within three months after first publication of the work, you can get uh, your attorney's fees paid by the other side if you win. And you can get an award of statutory damages without actually having to prove how much you've lost as a result of that bozo posting it on anchor or whatever. If you do encounter somebody doing those kinds of things, reposting your material or whatever, if it's in the online space, you can use the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA takedown procedure. We've all seen, you know, get a link to a video and you go there and YouTube says that video is no longer available. That's because somebody did that. They, they mm-hmm. The owner of the material said, hey, that's mine. They're using it without my permission. Take it down. And in order to protect itself, the hosting company has to take it down. So um, that's the first line of defense against when you find out someone's doing it, but then it's call a lawyer or file a lawsuit or whatever to protect. The other area that comes up for podcasters a lot, and, and brands ought to be aware of this too, is that if somebody comes along and adopts this a same, a same or similar brand or title for their show, as my show, for example, there are trademark rights involved, but trademarks generally are very narrow in scope until you register at the federal level or sometimes even internationally. So if you have a great distinctive brand for your show, I recommend registering it, you know, as early as possible. And this is important because uh, for the reason I say it's important for brands and brands of course should do this for their trademarks as well, their brands. But it's important that if you're advertising on a particular show, you don't want to be tarred by the brush of some other show with the same or similar title that is total dreck or that puts out a message that's sort of contrary to your company's culture and philosophy or, or whatever, you know, you could have two shows with the same title, one of which is right down the middle for your audience. And the other one is, you know, all about, you know, porn and sexual abuse and things like that. Brands don't want to be associated with that. But if users start to see maybe the title of the show listed on a website or some, Hey, we advertise on here and they go and they find the wrong one that's going to leave a bad taste in people's mouths. And so mm-hmm. you, you want to be careful uh, as a podcaster, you want to be careful to protect, preserve and protect your brand so that your advertisers don't end up being disparaged by a, an a association that isn't comfortable for them. Right, right. I'm so glad you brought that up. That was actually going to be my next question. I find it really fascinating that, you know, having started several businesses myself, one of the challenges with naming a company now is really finding a URL that works, right? Because it's so hard. Everything is taken. And there's so many, I mean, it used to be like, if you start a business, it had to be .com or else people were like, oh, I don't know if that business is really legitimate. They have a .net. But, you know, with podcasts, man, you could have 10 shows with the exact same name. I mean, true crime (laughs) aside, right? I mean, how many podcasts are true crime this and true crime that? But I do find it really, really fascinating that people don't seem to pay any attention to shows that already exist. And then they start shows with the exact same name. And 
it doesn't really seem to bother anybody. And I suppose, as you had mentioned, it's because that name hasn't been trademarked. And I, I guess if you really come up with something that is creative or something that is very closely aligned with your brand, it is important to trademark that so someone can't come and start a podcast with the exact same name. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sort of an evangelist for the idea that you need to, A, choose a distinctive title when you start and register the trademark to protect it as early as you can. Some budget is always a factor, of course, sure. but you know you want to get into that and, and do it so that you don't encounter the situation of having 10 other shows with the same or very similar title. I think when you're choosing a title, the first thing you should do is check the directories and make sure there are no other shows with that same title. I think that's sort of basic business sense. Podcasters come in not always thinking of it as business. Right. Um, <laughs> that's the real but, problem right there. They don't think of it as being a business. Well, that's true. But I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, I represent a lot of podcasters who both on the registered side and the not registered side of, of trademarks. And uh, we are often, I mean, when there's registration, we're very successful getting the others to change and take down and, and uh, stop doing what they're doing. But even when they're not registered, there is some recourse. There are some basis for the idea that first to, to arrive gets to keep it. Yeah. So I, I write cease and desist letters and I don't like to be the shark who hits them over the head with things, but when it's necessary, if somebody's not cooperating and not playing by the rules, we'll do it as necessary to make them stop. Yeah. I have, I have one client who has a very, I mean, she was very lucky to get the registration for her name, which is, I'll say it's distinctive, but it's not that distinctive. If 40 other people have come up with the same or very similar title, Maybe it's not as distinctive as we think. <laughs> <laughs> and and trademark doesn't protect descriptive terms. So if Just my show is specific, right? Like it has to be in the exact like. And I guess are there lengths of how many words can be trademarked? No, you could register a very long phrase, but no, the the answer is no. It doesn't have to be an exact match to be an infringement of a trademark as long as it's confusingly similar. Likelihood of confusion is really the test. But in order to uh, to be protected at all, it has to be distinctive, not descriptive or or generic. Right. My own title, show title, is a great example. Um, before, well, when we started, we called the show Entertainment Law Update. Really describes exactly what we do. Now, because we've been doing it for so long, we started our show 13, a little over 13 years ago now, we have acquired the necessary distinctiveness to hold a trademark registration for our, our title. Somebody else comes along and starts their show. Now we're going to, we're going to win, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, it would have been better to choose something sort of that has no connection to entertainment law, you know, come up with a, a clever, unique twist on things. So being distinctive is always good for brands. And, um, yeah, that's my advice there. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about it from the advertiser's perspective. So um, I'm curious, do you think that there are certain things that advertisers need to be really aware of when they're going into a campaign with a podcaster? I mean, of course, things that come to mind are things like brand safety. Um, you know, if that, that host does something crazy, they're kind of affiliated in some way. Um, what should advertisers think about from a legal perspective when they're getting, you know, getting into a relationship with a podcaster? Well, the good news is it's really not that complicated of a relationship. The podcaster has some inventory 
spots in the show to sell. And the advertiser wants that inventory to get its message to the audience. So I think what the advertiser's main concern is, are we actually going to reach that audience the way we expect to? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think advertisers should be asking the podcasts that they that they work with is, are you doing things by the numbers, by the book? Are you getting your guests to give you some kind of a release telling you, yes, it's okay to use my recording and of my voice in any way, you know, you want and so on. Because unfortunately I've seen this where a guest on a show later comes back and says, I'm no longer happy with that. I want you to take it down. Mm -hmm. Well, advertiser had paid for, you know, a certain amount of money to have that message in that show as a host read in this case, in that show forever. Well, if the episode's not, not there after two or three months, the advertiser isn't getting what it paid for. It may not seem like a really big deal, but if it's happening often or whatever, or, you know, and, and frankly, that's a red flag that maybe the show is doing something that's taken off the guests and possibly audience too. So again, you get into that affiliation with somebody, are you sure you want to be in business with them? So you are doing a little due diligence on the front end, of course, checking out the listen to a couple episodes of the show, find out, is this really on brand? Mm-hmm. But then also find out, are they doing things by the numbers or are they a seat of the pants, wild west kind of an approach to things, which may be on brand, but then you go in knowing that there's that risk that maybe the episodes aren't there as long as you'd like or whatever. Mm-hmm. Less of a problem with the programmatic and the dynamic ads, because if it's gone, you're not paying for it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I do think that that's something we talk a lot about with dynamic ad insertion is that you do have, I think, a lot more control. So from an advertiser perspective, if that host does something that you're not pleased with, you could instantly have them pull your ads. And also you're only running for a short period of time, whereas with embedded ads, you know, maybe two years ago when your ad was inserted, you liked that show and you liked the guest. And I know I have had experiences where I've been listening to a business show, I loved it. And then all of a sudden the host decided they were going to be political and you know, they wanted to switch to politics. And I'm like, whoa, this is the left turn. Okay. Um, but I mean, it happens, right? And if your ads are embedded, you know, what are you being associated with? So that's one of the nice things about dynamic ad insertion is just a little bit more control. Yeah. At least at the episodic level, I think you could sort of deal with that by saying, look, in the contract, if you have sort of certain areas that you just don't want to touch, Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell the average, the, the host, look, I, you know, you're not never going to have control over the content of the show mm-hmm. unless you're doing a branded episode kind of a deal. But in the other situation, you can tell the host, look, if you're going to talk about abortion, we're not advertising on that episode and you'll have to give us a make good. Mm-hmm. Take our, don't put us in that and, t- and give us a make good. That's an important point to see in your contracts is that make good provision. So you knew, you're at least getting the, the number of inventory spaces that you were expecting. Or a refund, I guess, but podcasters yeah. don't want to give refunds. Makes <laughs> <So, laughs> No one wants to give refunds. Yeah, make kids are good. Um, so one thing that has been very interesting to me is who can and cannot advertise in podcasts. So for instance, CBD advertisers are through the roof in podcasts because to my knowledge, a CBD company cannot advertise really anywhere on social media. I think when it comes to like Google ads, there's a lot of restrictions about where they can and can't advertise. So, you know, that's just an example of a type of company that really has flocked to podcasts because it 
doesn't really seem like there are a lot of restrictions. And I will say at True Native, we recently have gotten quite a few like THC advertisers who are coming to us. We've had some really strange kind of supplements where, you know, like we live literally go in that we're like, oh, you know, this is unhealthy. We can see that there's all these reports that this product's probably not something people should be taking. Are there any laws in place or is there, I, I just, I, I find it really strange that there isn't, especially in the US, you know, a branch of the government that is restricting who and who can and can't advertise. Well, there is, there are two departments of the government that do actually restrict <laughs> certain kinds of advertisements. Yes. The Federal Communications Commission yeah. has jurisdiction over broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And, and, and do podcasts fall into that jurisdiction? No, they don't because they're, it's all private stuff. There's no public airwaves being used or anything like that. Okay. So the FCC doesn't really have a lot of power to say what you can and can't put in your podcast. In fact, that's why you could have a podcast that is, some would call it erotica, some might call it pornography, right? No restrictions on it. You can't put that on television. Right. Might be able to put it on certain cable television. You know, so there there are anyway. So the government this is the First Amendment, freedom of speech. If I'm paying for my recording and my hosting and the transmission and all of that, and my listener is paying to, you know, for their internet service to receive it, the government has no business getting in there. There's no it's not a congressional action. And if they were to make a restriction, it would be a violation of the First Amendment. That said, they do have some authority to regulate false advertising and misleading, you know, deceptive kinds of stuff. The area that you talked about in particular, CBD and THC, and those, these are controlled substances under federal law, and certain states have legalized and certain states haven't. So the restrictions that you talked about with, you know, social media companies and Google and those kind of things, that's not government restriction. Right. That's right. those companies saying that's a hot potato. We don't want to touch it because we've got too many customers in that state that's trying to regulate it. So we don't want the state of whichever state it is mm-hmm. telling the other companies we do business in that state, you can no longer be in business with Facebook, for example. Right. right. So as a podcaster, um, we have the benefit of being a little smaller, a little less of a target. It doesn't mean we're not a target. And if you you are a podcaster who lives in a particular state that has stricter regulations, you probably shouldn't be taking advertising from a company that whose product isn't legal in that state, because then you are exposed to the risk of being, I guess you're cooperating in the process of trafficking and then in the illegal or controlled substance or something like that. But if you're in a state where anything goes, yeah, you could put it in your podcast and it's sort of up to the, to the listeners to decide what they're going to, you know, who they're going to be in business with and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think it could a state tell a podcasting hosting company, Hey, you can't distribute that show in our state because they're selling a product that's illegal. They're promoting a product that's illegal here. And I don't think so. I am not aware of any countries really. I mean, there are a few countries that are despotic regimes where they really don't allow much of anything to cross their borders. But, um, so again, you said earlier, it's a little bit of the wild west. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is what's going on here in the podcast advertising space. But the, the good news is it's first amendment protected speech, just like you know, publishing a newspaper. Are they going to really tell the New York Times they can't run an ad for a CBD in the business section of the New York Times? Of course not. New York Times is a private publisher. It's not 
within the government's authority to really regulate that. Okay. Okay. Great. I thought that that was the case, but it's it's nice to to have confirmation that that is the case. One thought that I have, though, is should a host be concerned about endorsing or recommending a product that could ultimately be harmful? So, you know, in the case of a host recommending a supplement that the FDA has said, like, hey, this is really not good for you. You shouldn't be, you know, consuming this. And then the host is getting up and saying, oh, yeah, this is great. You should take it. It's going to make you feel 20 years younger. And all of a sudden, you know, their audience maybe is consuming the product, having negative side effects. They could, I would think then, and maybe this is just a civil suit, but come back to that host and say, hey, I'm going to sue you because you recommended this product and it did me harm. Yeah, I mean, I think recommendation is a little different than straight up advertising. Uh, so when the advertiser provides you some ad copy, and usually that ad copy is carefully vetted by the brand's lawyers and team, or at least thoughtfully written, we hope, by the brand. And so they are operating within the boundaries of what they know they're allowed to say, especially with nutritional supplements and medicines and things like that, herbal supplements. They have to be really careful not to cross the lines of the FDA rules, which again, prohibit certain kinds of statements and things. So when the podcaster then goes on and elaborates on what's in the ad copy or makes it an endorsement, I use this product and it's great, that's okay, but you should use it because it will give you these benefits. That probably crosses a line unless that unless those talking points have been very clearly defined for the podcaster by the brand, because both brand and podcaster are at risk. And yeah, civil liability. If, if I tell you go out and try this thing and you die because of it, yeah, your family could come at me. And even if I win the lawsuit, cause again, first amendment, freedom of speech, I'm allowed to say what I want, mm -hmm. but even if I, even if I ultimately win the lawsuit, I'm probably a couple hundred thousand dollars in the hole as a result of the lawsuit. And I'm not getting that back anywhere. So we need to be careful and thoughtful about these things. And endorsing um, endorsing products, certainly that we haven't used, is a no-no. And if we do actually use it, we should limit our endorsement to, I use it and I'm really happy, that kind of mm -hmm. messaging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Excellent. That's great advice. I mean, I think from an effectiveness standpoint, we talk so much about that host read endorsement ad mm -hmm. and how effective it is. Because when you listen to a podcast and you know, like, and trust the host, you are more likely to go out and purchase the product that they're talking about. But really what you're saying, which I think makes a whole lot of sense, is there is a difference between I use this product and I like this product and you should go and buy this product. It's going to help you lose weight. Yeah. And we also, I think we really need to be careful about the transition into the ad if we're just having a conversation with our co-host and talking about what a great night's sleep I had last night, ever since I got that new mattress, it's been fantastic. And you know, oh, what kind of mattress is it? Oh, it's a purple, you know, you go get into the, that discussion. We don't, the audience doesn't know, oh, this is an ad. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to feel more like that endorsement or that, that recommendation. So I think we need to be very clear when we're doing advertising that we're doing it, that, Hey, mm -hmm. now a message from our sponsor, or let's pay the bills. We're going to read, you know, we're going to do this and make it a little clear to the audience. And audiences appreciate that we have to pay the bills mm -hmm. um, and that. So, yeah. And I think brands need to be vigilant to make sure that the host red ad doesn't read like it's just part of the body of the episode. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're mm -hmm. going to do an ad now. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a big difference in, in letting the world know and 
eliminating some of that risk. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Gordon, I really have appreciated our conversation today. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you think is really good for either podcasters or advertisers to be aware of? Well, I think we touched on the idea that we should be thinking of this as a business. If you're on the podcaster side and you're, and you're going to be running ads, you ought to be thinking about forming an entity to be the container for the show and for its business and so on. Doing contracts, having good or uh, strong arrangements that document our relationships. I sometimes talk about the podcast prenup when we talk about the people working on the show with us. Everybody should know what they get, what they own, what they're not entitled to, and, and those kinds of things. And protecting our intellectual property. Yeah, we sort of touched on it all. So uh, mm -hmm. thanks for the opportunity to spread the message. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been it's been a great conversation, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the mistakes that podcasters make is they approach their podcast as a hobby. And if you are really looking to monetize your show, you really need to approach it as a business from a lot of different perspectives. But legally, for sure, it's going to make your life a lot better. So. Even if monetization isn't your goal, you may look very much like a business to the outside world. And so thinking about it in a business-like approach, being professional, this, this is sort of my core message is you got to get legit and go pro, even if you're not in it to make money, because the world's going to think of you as a podcaster, not as some guy who has a podcast or right. be a podcaster, be, be official and, and professional about it. And you never know. What if somebody approaches you and says they want to buy your show and you I don't have anything set up? That could happen, right? And so you you really do need to make sure that your podcast is run like a business. Indeed. Well, Gordon, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to find you? Well, I'm lucky to have a distinctive name, like we talked about, uh, GordonFiremark.com will get you to most of my stuff. And the law firm and, and my podcast and stuff all show up at Firemark.com. So. Excellent. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for listening to the show today. If you want to learn more about podcast advertising, head on over to truenativemedia.com. We have a podcast advertising guide there for you that we would love for you to download to learn everything you need to know about podcast advertising. Take care and we will catch you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Podcast Advertising Playbook, your source to a better understanding of the podcast advertising industry. 